hello and welcome to this latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. Uh, my name's Jared Dean. Um, we're today going to talk about something that's very topical, or should we say very tropical. Uh, Paul Gosling is joining me as always. Paul, how are you? I'm as usual. Fair enough, you know. That's good. That's good. So the one story that's consistently in the news broadcasts at the moment is the heat. Uh, Europe, China, Iran and the United States are recording their highest temperatures, almost 50 degrees in parts of southern Europe, with a new spate of forest fires in Greece, while we still haven't forgotten the forest fires in Canada, which blew smoke across America as far as Washington. So meanwhile, the Antarctic is melting at its fastest ever rate. Uh, June was Europe's hottest month ever. Last year's heat killed 61,000 people across the continent. So in this episode, we're going to discuss something that none of us can ignore, and that's our weather and climate. Um, but also what we can do about that on a practical basis, not just to cut our carbon emissions, but also to cut our energy bills. And playing our part in tackling climate change will also save us money. And we'll hear from a couple of experts later on on how to do that. So, Paul, can you talk us through the background of the podcast first? Yeah, thanks, Gerard. Uh, yes, we've had several weeks of really hot weather in Derry, which then turned into day after day of miserable rain. So one or even two spells of very hot temperatures do not in themselves prove climate catastrophe. It's the trend we have to consider. Though what is happening currently in Southern Europe is pretty catastrophic. But it's the trend that must worry us most of all. Last year featured the hottest day ever recorded in the UK in July in Lincolnshire. Ireland's hottest day ever was also recorded last year in August in County Carlo. And six of Ireland's 10 hottest years have been recorded since 1990. All of the UK's top 10 warmest years have been recorded since 2000. And 2022 was the hottest year in record in much of Europe. But this year is proving even hotter. Now, the Met Office states categorically this series of hot weather records represents climate change and results from the widespread burning of fossil fuels that began with the Industrial Revolution. Now, we should recognise that there are sceptics, including some well-known politicians and other public figures, who claim that climate warming is the result of natural fluctuations that occur over time. But we also need to recognise that this view is not shared by the overwhelming majority of respected scientists. What cannot be disputed is that we are experiencing substantial change, not just to patterns of heat, but also related impacts. Europe is heating up twice as fast as the global average. This is leading to tens of thousands of heat-related deaths, but also to flash flooding that our infrastructure cannot cope with. Climate-related flooding will be particularly severe in low-lying areas. Now, in Derry, that is predicted to mean that the Foyle River level will rise, with some land close to the river becoming permanently captured by the river. Now, we've witnessed in recent months some terrible fires in Greece, Canada and Australia, awful flooding in northern Italy, while wars are taking place across the Horn of Africa region that are arguably connected to climate change because of the drought and the loss of agricultural land displacing people. These, in turn, are causing many thousands of people to be moving around the globe and trying to find new homes. While intergovernmental conferences have aimed to reduce carbon emissions and limit the rise in global temperatures, the targets have been missed and it's been recognised that we're way off target. For example, while governments pledge to cut subsidies for the burning of fossil fuels, those subsidies have actually increased substantially 
in part because of the Ukraine war. So we're going, going in the wrong direction. Now, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in Europe are taking place at a lower level than promised. So again, we're just not making the actions that are needed. Okay, and Paul, you had a conversation with Professor John Barry from Queen's University, who gave us his own analysis of the crisis. And we must point out that this interview was recorded prior to the heat crisis of the last few days. So let's listen to John. John, how far are we as a society away from where we need to be in terms of carbon emissions and climate change? We are, you know, way, way behind, so far behind that, uh, although this may not mean much to, to listeners, but it's, it's really, really important. The international, uh, you know, climate negotiations were, were aimed at keeping global average temperatures below 1.5. That's now dead. So we are looking at a much more warmer world. Just given our remarks earlier in terms of the weather, this monsoon type rain, the heat, the, you know, strange weather is going to get worse. And that gives you an indication how far we are away. Most governments, uh, including the Northern Ireland Executive, have set net zero, so that's net zero greenhouse gas emissions by uh, 2050. And that's not that far away. What it means is that we need to be almost having all our emissions within the next seven years, so by 2030. And that means that to break it down, we should be reducing our emissions and that means the, uh, the fossil fuel intensity of transport, of electricity, of our food system and so on, by between, you know, 8 and 12% a year. And just to finish, just to give you the scale of the, uh, the challenge, but also the opportunities, and, and there's lots of opportunities in this green transition, even during the pandemic, where we had to stay at home, where there was no flying, um, and there was a, an, an enforced, if you like, reduction in fossil fuel emissions that only barely brought down greenhouse gas emissions so we are uh, a day late and many many tons and dollars of carbon short so we need to move very very quickly um, but this will deliver multiple benefits some of which we can talk about particularly in the residential housing sector and i guess john that in a sense we need to move further than our share of emissions in terms of residential properties because of the difficulties in shifting, reducing emissions in some other sectors, such as aero travel and maybe farming and uh, certain elements of industry. So there's more of an obligation, a, a requirement to reduce emissions in uh, residential properties. But as well as doing things about reducing emissions in residential properties, we also have to mitigate against the impact, don't we? So we have to think not only about how we reduce our emissions, how we cut our heating bills, but also how we protect our properties from the, the greater level of flooding that's taking place now, for example. No, 100%. And I know where you are in Derry and Straban, it has witnessed some terrible floods over the last number of years. Now, we can't say with, with 100 degrees certainly that's, that's as a result of climate breakdown, but it's certainly consistent with the models of the type of weather patterns we are going to see. And obviously that's another uh, cost for householders. And what we're talking about here now is what's called climate adaptation. So how do we actually adapt to an inevitably warmer and therefore more uh, climate destabilized world? The issue you raise on the, the different burdens on different sectors, like you know energy, electricity, housing, transport, farming is an interesting one because um, it, it should be proportionate. And this is the language of the just transition so in a way, why should um, people on benefits or low income 
in housing executive residential properties, why should they bear a disproportionate amount of the cost of the uh, decarbonisation transmission when it's agriculture in Northern Ireland that is the biggest sector that causes most of the greenhouse gas emissions? So it's about 27% for the agricultural sector here in the north. It's even bigger down south. Agriculture counts for over 40% down south. And we will see this being played out in real time as the different sectors begin to jostle. Because you could say it's legitimate. Why should the residential housing sector take more of a burden, particularly when it's falling on those on low income, when it actually should be uh, aviation that should maybe t uh, take its fair share? Um, and the same with agriculture. And so this is the issue of where science and justice comes, you know, meets. Uh, and certainly I'd be advocating that farming and uh, electricity and energy and transport, they should be taking their fair share in, in, and even eat more, perhaps, maybe in the, in the transportation sector. There's an argument for maybe it taking a little bit more because it's easier to decarbonize many forms of our transportation in order to protect low-income households. Because the last thing I'd say why this is really important is that a just transition will guard against what we've seen in France with the Gilets jaunes, the kind of the yellow vest movement in France in 2018, was against an, an unfair and unjust carbon tax that was raised by the Macron government. In other words, people will resist the, the energy and the decarbonisation trans transition if, if, they, if they see their lives getting materially worse and other sectors not carrying their fair share. And that is where we come to the difficult point, don't we, John, which is how do we make the changes that are required to residential housing that are needed both to cut our costs, because it's inevitable, I would suggest, that energy costs will continue to rise and doing anything other than having rising costs won't actually impact people in a way that's going to encourage them to, to cut their energy use. Uh, but any measures that can be taken are likely to be very expensive. When I ask about measures for my own home, the best option would be, in terms of reducing energy use, would be to clad the house. And we're talking substantially more than £10,000, which, you know, people yeah. don't have. And that's only part of the, the way. People don't have ten to 20 maybe sometimes £30,000 to energy improve their, their properties. So what do you think we should focus on? Well, I think firstly, we should move away resolutely from an individual household focus. Um, this is a whole of society and should be a state-led transition. I mean, there is a, a dominant kind of individualistic, dare say, capitalist model of this transition, which is that each of us as households, we're going to get electric cars, we're going to invest in heat pumps, we're going to put solar panels up, we're going to have the money to insulate our homes. And to me, that is frankly um, not going to work. For the majority of, of, of people, they simply don't have the money. We need a state-led process, particularly around decarbonizing heat, uh, providing uh, cheap and, and secure forms of renewable energy. One of the advantages of renewable energy is that we're not dependent upon horrible regimes like Saudi Arabia or Russia for importing our uh, coal oil and gas. But for me, this has to be a state-led process, particularly around insulation. I mean, I co-chaired the Belfast Climate Commission and we did some work looking at what were the most cost effective and most carbon effective measures that we could introduce. And Northern Ireland and Belfast is unique for many reasons. One is that we are probably 
the, 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 the proportion of the population in Europe, perhaps, that's dependent upon oil for space heating. Most other countries, it, it's gas or some other form of space heating technology. But also we have some of the worst insulated housing stock in Europe. So that's a deadly combination of a very volatile uh, commodity like oil, like an increase in prices you've seen over the last uh, cost of living prices. But then people are heating the streets because the, the, the heat has not been maintained. And so for me, the government could actually save money in terms of the burden on the NHS, for example, because we know if you live in a hard to heat home, uh, kids don't learn uh, as well, they're ill, there's mental health problems. So the savings for the NHS. But apart from that, my own view is, um, and this is where we might disagree, perhaps, Paul, is that this idea that, that automatically people would respond to me by saying, oh, where's the government going to get the money? And my view is that, because uh, I have a functional uh, you know, view of state finances, states are not like households. You and I have to earn money or we have to engage in austerity or cutting back to create some wriggle room. That's not how a sovereign country like Britain with its own currency actually works. It can create the money and mobilise the resources in the same way that we saw over two examples historically, one of which we've all experienced and one of which maybe only older members listening to us will have experienced. The Second World War was not dependent upon raising taxes. The government had a clear and present danger and it mobilised the material resources of British society to fight the war effort. Similarly, the pandemic is the more recent example where the government just simply went and did what it should do, which is protect people. So my own view is very strong. The, the issue is not the lack of government money. Look how quickly the former uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, could promise millions to uh, Vladimir Zelensky in, 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 the, in the war in Ukraine, but couldn't find the money for the NHS. So anybody listening, do not be fooled by politicians and others who say that the issue is the lack of money. As John Maynard Keynes, the, the old economist, quite wisely said, Anything that is technically possible is financially affordable. And if that degree of wartime mobilization, we are in a planetary crisis. And these normal policy responses of raising taxes and austerity, to me, are not needed. And in fact, they're a distraction. The government, a sovereign currency issuing government like the UK, can find the money to mobilize the resources to retrofit every house in the country. And that would save lots of money and the issue uh, in terms of the NHS and so on, provide jobs, which we also need as well. So I do think we need a, a different view of how uh, state finances work. But that's probably, as you say, scale Ella of, of a different podcast. I'm not going to disagree at all with what you said, John, except to say I can't see the will amongst any of the political parties, either in Great Britain or Northern Ireland or any of the major countries in order to do what's needed in terms of what you're saying. But I, 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 to be honest with you as well, realistically, I, I think you're probably right. But the issue is there is no uh, functional uh, reason. This is ideological. Uh, it's the dominance of a particular view of economics and state finances that we find in most of the treasury and finance departments of most governments, certainly in Europe, this kind of neoliberal orthodoxy around this idea that somehow we have to raise taxes and then spend it. That is what you might call handbag economics. And I blame Margaret Thatcher for that analogy that, you know, we've got to, you know, use uh, the, the state must use public money like like a prudent housewife or something like that. 
And it intuitively makes sense where we think, oh, you're going to raise the money and then we have to spend it. Yet we as individuals, our local governments, uh, we that's how we have to think, but not for the state. But it's purely ideological. And, and the more people are aware of that, we should be demanding of our politicians to release the resources that can help literally save lives because lives are going to be lost. Never mind property and people living miserable lives because the government is not doing the right thing. And the last thing I would say is that, you know, on the day on the day after the Bank of England has raised interest rates now to 5%, all that means is the powers that be have decided that unemployment is going to be the way to be inflation. Uh, and, and there's no reason for that in the same way that they can tackle, i.e. the government can tackle the, the problems we're talking about here without getting into an inflationary spiral or indeed engaging in, in austerity. So thanks to John for that analysis. Uh, Paul, there's common cause uh, between playing our part in reducing carbon emissions and also cutting our energy bills, which is very important at the moment. Yes, Gerard. Inflation has hit everyone hard, though especially those who are reliant on benefits and the very many people in and around Derry who are on low pay. So this is a crisis that's disproportionately affecting Northern Ireland and especially Derry. So for large numbers of people, they've not had the pay rises that match their higher costs, especially in terms of energy bills. So I spoke to the National Energy Agency's Home Energy Advisor, Nicola McDougall, to ask their advice on how to reduce energy bills, which will also cut our carbon emissions. And we should stress that this can involve some small cheap actions, as well as the big ticket items. Okay, so let's listen to Nicola's advice. There are lots of things that people can do, and I think that's what people don't realise. But individually on their own, there's, they're not massive savings, but if we put them all together, you know, I think I use the analogy sometimes of when you go to the, you know, to do your weekly shop, and if everything's up a couple of pence, you might not notice straight away, but you do when you get to the till. It's the same with your house. But with your question, the two main areas I would be looking at and I always come, I do a lot of talks like this, energy efficiency talks out to community groups about, um, you know, no cost, low cost. We want to start at the bottom and work our way up. It's about insulation and your heating system. Now, there's no point in having the all singing, all dancing heating system if your house is just letting the heat escape. So I would be very much looking at the insulation side of it. In terms of, you know, no cost, low cost, it's draft proofing for me because, they estimate that 15% of your heat escapes through drafts. And this can be a really low cost way of people, you know, improving their thermal comfort very quickly and then also saving money. And if your heating's not on as much, you're also reducing the amount of carbon you're obviously emitting. In Northern Ireland, we know that most of our homes are drafty and inefficient because they've all been built sort of before the 1980s. So definitely draft proofing. And then if people can afford it or they're eligible for grants, definitely looking at, you know, loft insulation and getting, you know, the walls as well, because they're the two main areas where our heat escapes. In terms of your heating system, again, I'm not telling people you should, you know, rip out what you have and get a new heating system. I'm actually saying to people, work out what you've already got and can you make any improvements of it? I think we can all do that. 65% of your energy usage is used you know, heat, you know, space on space heating. So looking at how well am I controlling it? Am I just putting it on and then turning it off when I remember? And then usually it's been on for too long. You're, you've actually, you're overheating. Um, it's a bit like, 
a lot of homes still have what we call the dreaded immersion heater, where it used to be a switch in a cupboard that we would forget about. If we have controls, things that make <clears throat> sorry, life a bit easier, where you can have timers or programmers, they definitely have been found to save people money because they're not let, let leaving things running for too long. And then thermostats, are they up too high? Um, lot, like the Energy Saving Trust and lots of other research have shown that you can save 10% of your heating bill just from turning your thermostat down by one degree. Um, and just, I mean, I would even advocate whatever heating controls and programmers you have in your house, there'll be somebody who on YouTube or on the internet who will show you how to work it at its most efficient if you're not sure how to do that. Now, you mentioned about heating systems. Um, my partner <coughs> always insists that it's important to have your burners uh, serviced every year. Do, yes. do you think that's really important? Absolutely. And I would all, you know, I would, that's one, usually one of the first things I will say to people, how many people have had their boiler serviced this year, because one, it helps it run more efficiently. And it will, you know, usually if there's going to be any issues, if you have it serviced every year, you're going to, you know, prevent any major damage happening to the system, but it's saving you money. Um, and I'm always encouraging people, get it done during the summertime. Don't wait until October, you know, uh, November, December, when it's actually hard to get the very, you know, the, the heating engineers are very busy because everybody's requesting them. And you might actually get a better deal, you know, if you're getting it um, sorted out over the summer as well. Now, the two things that I've done that have seemed to be the most useful to me is one to replace thin curtains with much thicker curtains. And the other is because I don't have a bath, I use showers to actually yeah. get the water tank, the hot water tank replaced with a much smaller one, because otherwise we're just heating water we're yeah. not using. I mean, is that the type of thing that we should be yeah. doing? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, if if somebody is getting maybe a new heating system fitted or any, you know, like that, make sure that it's suitable for the size of the house. I think sometimes, you know, we get things that are oversized or they're undersized and they're working too hard. So it's it's maybe getting, you know, a second opinion, you know, if you're getting, a, you know, a, um, a new heating system um, in terms of your like hot water cylinders as well, having a thermostat on them. To, so that you're not overheating the water as well. I mean, we recommend that it, it shouldn't have to go above 60 degrees to ward off Legionnaire's disease, obviously, but anything hotter than that when you, you know, you're adding the cold water to it, you know, which is defeats the purpose of it, you know, in the first place. For showers, I mean, we always get into the debate of how long. It depends on if it's an electric shower. If it's an electric shower, there are recommendations out there, you know, you can save money, you know, one minute less in the shower every time you have a shower. I try not to dictate to people how long they should have a shower because it could be the only maybe heat that they're getting that day or it's a it's more of a, you know, a, a well-being issue as well. But if, you know, you find that, you know, there's a big family and there's lots of people having 10, 20 minute showers, maybe just getting to encourage them to reduce the time of that because that will save them money as well. Now, we've talked about the, the cheaper solutions. If you've got a bit of money, what would you do to improve the the energy efficiency of your home? For my own personal home, I live in a semi-detached chalet bungalow, which are notoriously drafty. So I've already done the cavity wall insulation, which has done wonders. Uh, absolutely, you know, made such a difference. Really noticed it. 
the sort of um, the start of this year when it was really cold, particularly at the back of the house. I do know um, I was supposed to move house last year and it didn't happen, but I did have to get my um, energy performance certificate updated. So when they came out to do the survey, I do need to improve my loft insulation. So my loft insulation should be 270 millimetres thick and it's not. So I got a few marks deducted for that. And also I have an old conservatory on the back of my house. And if I did get a bit of money, I would consider um, changing that to an extension because I'm actually losing heat through, um, you know, the glass from that house. It, it's it's not as efficient as it possibly could do. So I would be looking particularly at um, insulating the house. Um, the rest of the house I have isn't too bad. I have it. Um, of all my controls. So I, I actually invested in some smart heating controls. And sometimes when you say that to people, it sort of it worries them. Oh, it's all technology. It's a bit wet, you know, it's a bit scary. It could be really expensive, but the price of them have really come down. And it's literally an extra layer of control for me. I am out and about quite a lot. And sometimes I'm not sure when I'm going to be in. And over the winter time, if you have your heating set to come on at certain times and you're not going to be there, well, that's a waste if there's nobody in the house. So I actually have an app on my phone and I can bring my heating on or off when I'm away from the house. So I have just another level of control over it. But there's always things that you could do. Um, probably, though, Paul, if I got lots of money, I would probably move. But <laughs> um, that's that I would have to win the lottery or something there. You mentioned cavity wall insulation. Now, mm -hmm. a, a supplier of cavity wall insulation has told me that you should replace it after 20 or 30 years. I mean, are they just having me on and trying to get another sale or have they got a good point there? No, they, they do have a good point there. And that's why there are quite a few issues in homes in Northern Ireland because the insulation that was fitted is now 20, 30 years old and it's just not doing what it, it was. And a lot of the insulation um, previously fitted was the fibre. So now, uh, um, not sure about the the rest of the UK, but I know in Northern Ireland, but through the grants and all, they will put in the insulation beads. Um, they're found to have better insulating qualities and they have to extract, if there is any old um, insulation in there, just to reduce the type, you know, the chances of damp, you know, and condensation getting in between the walls, which is a bit of a, can be a bit of a disaster. They have to extract that out from the walls before they'll put in the, the beads but yeah there is um there are sort of uh tenants and what they'll do is they'll come out and actually the companies will come out and do what they call a boroscope and they'll check so if they're checking um you know to see if you're um if you need it you know i would say and they're saying yes i would probably agree with them if it's been in for a long time now a lot of people especially living in apartments will have old storage heaters and one of the things mm -hmm. that's been recommended to me is you don't need to replace the storage heaters but perhaps get new elements installed which will be more efficient is is that a good approach do you think the issue with storage heaters um depends on the apartment itself in general because again it's all about the insulation unfortunately there's um there still are some homes that do have the older economy seven storage heaters. From my experience, some of them are so outdated that they through the grants and stuff, they are upgrading them to much more modern ones. And the more modern ones um have more controls on them. So they have heating programmers on them, they have thermostats, whereas the old storage heaters, you had to manually set each one of them, you know, um each day. And again, a lot of people just were never really shown how to set them. So one of the one of the 
in one of the qualifications that we actually deliver at National Energy Action, um, we actually go through how do you know how do they they work, um, how do they work on certain tariffs as well with the provider, and how to you know how to set them. Um, but again, as I say, if if somebody was getting one of the grants, they will actually up, upgrade them to a much more modern, and a lot of electrical. Um, there is a, is a lot 20 direct directive has said that storage heaters must much must have much more controls and be much more efficient than the older ones. Now, when we've talked uh, outside of this uh, conversation, uh, we've discussed about us having different opinions in terms of the best temperature for a home. Because yeah. you recommend yeah. 21 degrees. I keep my home a very measly 18 degrees or so, uh, which I find a comfortable temperature. So, yeah. so what's right, what's wrong? I don't think anything's right or wrong. I think it's because generally between 18 and 24 degrees, if you're a healthy person, there are healthy temperatures to live within. We go with the World Health Organization's recommendation of 21 degrees because we're working with very vulnerable people. So there could be older people or people with health conditions or with young children in the house. So that's why we um recommend the 21 degrees and also for people who maybe aren't as mobile i know personally myself with working from home that if i'm sitting doing one of my talks online if it's 18 degrees and i'm not moving i will get cold but i can get up and move about if you were an older person maybe on certain medications you know blood thinners and stuff like that there 18 might be a bit cold so that's where you know but there's no we're not uh we're not saying they has to be but that's just like a a a one in the middle sort of a recommendation and some people will have it a wee bit higher and some people have it lower now all this information is really useful nicola how can people at home get more information and can you say a bit about what your organization national energy yeah. agency does yeah so we are um a fuel poverty charity now my role within the charity is i'm the training officer so there's two sides of my role where i'm delivering energy awareness qualifications to industry, housing executive, housing associations, anybody who wants to gain a qualification in energy awareness and just improve their knowledge. And we have other sort of uh, accredited qualifications. The other side of my role is I go out to community groups. You know, I get requested from the likes of, you know, AGNI or um, lots of, you know, um, Northern Iron Chest, Heart and Stroke, and lots of community groups and older person groups who want somebody to come out and do a talk about energy efficiency. And I have to say, the demand has really increased in the last year, not surprisingly because of the cost of living, but there's definitely an interest in people trying to see what they can actually do themselves in the home, which, you know, um, I've been in this job five years and I definitely can see that people are interested. Now, the rest of my colleagues, um, well, our overall aim is to, you know, we're we're looking after you know, the most vulnerable in society. So we're working to ensure everyone has a warm, safe home. But the other side of it is we provide advice and support. Um, we campaign um, and advocate. So we're always involved in, you know, campaigning, you know, to government to, um, you know, we're working closely with the likes of the Consumer Council and the utility regulator just to make sure things are fair for consumers, you know, um, issues with prepayment meters, you know, the energy bills, you know, the the energy payment that was coming out, you know, making sure that worked for, you know, uh, worked for us in Northern Ireland, because we know our um, our setup is a bit different than across the water. Now I have colleagues in England and Wales and our sister charity is Energy Action Scotland, but we also have a research team and we, um, you know, 
just there's just so we're just involved in so much trying to make sure that, that it's fair and the scary thing is unfortunately the numbers of people here classed as fuel poor is increasing so i think the latest figures we had across the uk is they estimate 6.6 million people could be living in fuel poverty so there's still a lot of work to be done there and proportionately i think the figure is even higher in northern ireland than yeah so we um there ha that's one of the issues in northern ireland we don't have great you know um definite figures but but um nea last year we um uh, did a lucid uh, talks poll on um, there was estimations of up to 45 percent of the population being classed as fuel poor and that's if you have to spend more than 10 percent of your um income on uh Paying all sort of fuel costs, and we know that people's incomes aren't increasing as well. So we could see how that's going to; those numbers are going to increase. Okay, thanks, Dinegla. Some really important advice there, and thanks also to Professor John Barry for putting this crisis under a bit of context. Um, so thanks to Paul uh, for his analysis, as always. Thank you, Paul, and for doing the interviews. Um, that's it for the latest in our Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. Thanks as ever to the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council for the sponsorship of these podcasts. And you can get them all, all previous episodes on the Hollywell Trust website. Mm -hmm.